You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello listeners, welcome to the 1861st edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 13th of January 2022. The editor of this edition is Sue Aitchison, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Val Fletcher and Harvey Johnson. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. Um, the headlines. First headline. Son furious as mother, aged 77, is left in the cold outside A&E. Huge response to boost a vaccine in Suffolk. 83% eligible get jabs. Families devastated by plans to close Suffolk's last two middle schools. Council tax rise on the cards, but no cuts says County. Anger has been aimed at the management of West Suffolk Hospital after a 77-year-old mother was left outside its accident and emergency department on a cold night for more than an hour to be triaged. It comes as the hospital declared an internal critical incident due to 6.5% of the site's workforce being absent due to sickness. 3.2% of those being COVID-related. Richard Turner's mum, Patsy Irons, called an ambulance to her Acton home on December 30th after experiencing breathing problems, and the pair were urged to go to the Hardwick Lane site after a problem with her ECG readings. Patsy contracted COVID-19 on December 27th, so Richard informed the department when they arrived and was told to wait outside for someone to come and see them. He said, After about 25 minutes, a nurse came out and told us all the COVID beds were taken and they did not have any room, so they would do her preliminary checks outside and Julie hooked her up to a monitor and got her a wheelchair. Richard and his mum, who was in her pyjamas, slippers and a dressing gown, were left outside for around another 40 minutes until he went in to complain. He said, If they had said for us to sit in the car so they could get sorted, then we would have done. But just to leave her outside and not give us any time scale of when things were going to be done was bang out of order. A West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust spokesperson said they were investigating the incident. They said... We take patient experience very seriously and we are very sorry to hear about Miss Irons' recent experience which caused distress to both her and her son. On this day, the COVID-19 assessment area within our emergency department, which is prioritised for patients who are critically unwell with the virus, had no capacity. 
Due to the current volume of COVID-19 patients coming to the hospital, we have at times unfortunately had to ask some patients to wait in their cars until a space becomes available. We encourage any patient or family with any concerns to contact our patient advice and liaison service via email at PALS in capital letters at WSH.NHS.UK or on the telephone 01284 712555. Patsy was finally taken inside for treatment after more than an hour. And Richard, who emailed the chief executive and the hospital's customer care line after all of this took place, is now seeking answers into why this happened. He said, I'm not angry at the frontline staff, who we all know are under a lot of pressure and doing their utmost. I am frustrated that the management had no contingency plans in place for COVID-19 positive patients who come to A&E, meaning a 77-year-old woman had to spend so long outside on a December night. I want to know if they think it is acceptable and what are they going to do in the future so that no one else has to go through something like this. The other issue the pair had was that due to restrictions, Richard was not allowed to go in with his mother and when she came out after four or five hours, she had been given steroids to take home, but could not tell him why she had been prescribed them. Richard said, When we got home, I rang the hospital and said my mum was very confused, and could they tell me what happened while she was in there? The lady on the other end just seemed to laugh and say she could not tell me what happened either. But as my mum was let out, she must be fine. This whole situation just needs answers, really. Why were we left out in the cold for so long? And why was nothing given to my mum in writing to explain to me what treatment she was given when she was in there for those four or five hours? I just feel the management really need to take responsibility and look at the systems they have in place for these things. To help those with COVID-19 that are going into the hospital and for those looking after them when they come out. The West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, which manages the site, said that the Patient Advice and Liaison Service, that's PALS, P-A-L-S, had been informed of what had happened to Patsy and Richard that evening and were currently conducting an investigation into the incident. More than 83% of Suffolk's eligible population have had a booster COVID-19 jab. Health chiefs say 459,000 people out of the 551,000 eligible in the county have been boosted and are urging the remaining 92,500 people yet to come forward to get their jab. It means 56.9% of the county's overall population have been jabbed with a booster. They are also continuing to encourage people yet to have a first or second dose to come forward, confirming that it is not too late and no one will be judged. Elizabeth Maloney, Deputy Director of Strategic Change at the county's Clinical Commissioning Group, said, Of that total eligible population, I think we should be really proud 
that we have vaccinated 83% of those people. However, we do still have 92,500 patients that are eligible that have not yet been vaccinated. As always, we do continue to really focus on that. But I would like to emphasise we have thousands of appointments available at the moment and we have had for some considerable time now, including during the Christmas period. There are walk-ins and appointments available on the national booking system and they are available for first, second, third doses for the immunosuppressed and the booster campaign. And we're offering those to children 12 and above right the way through, she added. The health service is also keen for health and care workers to come forward for their jabs to ensure they can continue their employment beyond April when new rules mandating a vaccination come into force. It means that to hit the deadline people must have had a first dose by February the 3rd and a second dose by April the 1st. Stuart Keeble, Public Health Suffolk Director, said, What is really positive is that over the last two weeks we have seen about 2,000 over 70-year-olds get their boosters where that would have been available to them far earlier and a further 1,000 have had their first vaccines as well. It's not too late and people are still making those decisions and still coming forward. That is really positive. People have made those steps and we will be supportive to help everybody through and have those conversations. You can still do it. There is no judgment. We just welcome you through to come and get those vaccines. Parents have said it would be a real shame if the last two middle schools in Suffolk are closed. Unity Schools Partnership is proposing to shut Wesley Middle School and Horringer Court Middle School in Bury St Edmunds in August 2023 because of dwindling pupil numbers. If approved, plans would see Tolgate Primary School and County Upper School also in the town extend their age ranges to join the two-tier model of education. Formerly part of the Bury St Edmunds All Through Trust, Wesley and Horringer Court avoided closing in 2016 when other middle schools in the town shut. Reacting to the news of the proposed closures on social media, parents said they were devastated and very sad. Barbara Pooley, 55, who has a granddaughter at Wesley Middle, said it would be such a pity to close excellent middle schools which cater for ages 9 to 13. She said, When she found out, my granddaughter burst into tears and had a complete meltdown. She's 10 and will be 11 in June. She had sort of grown out of Tolgate Primary. Since she's been at Wesley Middle, she's just flourished. She added, We live just round the corner from Wesley Middle and she's able to walk here after school. Concerned families have also said they prefer the middle school route due to the specialist provision children receive, such as in languages, as well as having an extra stage before secondary school. Former middle school teacher Sarah Dean, aged 42, said three of her children have been through Wesley Middle and she had hoped her two at primary school would move up to the middle. An advocate of middle schools, Mrs Dean taught at Horringer Court Middle School from 2010 to 2017 
and said they put so much work in at the time to keep the schools open. She said she felt surprise and panic on hearing the announcement and added, Parents cannot let this happen. She also shares the view that the Trust should look at consolidating onto one site rather than closing both schools. Tim Coulson, Chief Executive of Unity Schools Partnership, said the number of families choosing middle schools was diminishing, with a knock-on effect on the type of education they could offer students in the future. The council tax rise of just under 3% is planned by Suffolk County Council from April, but the administration has pledged no cuts for the year ahead. The council published its 2022-23 budget proposals last week, which proposes a maximum 1.99% increase in the main council tax element and a 1% increase on the adult social care element. The administration could have increased the adult social care element by a further 1% as it did not use the maximum increase last year, but said it had resisted that to ease the burden on homes whose budgets were already facing rising energy bills and cost of living pressures. Richard Rout, Deputy Council Leader and Cabinet Member for Finance and the Environment, said, This has been a really difficult budget to consider. Covid continues to make life really challenging on so many levels for all of us, for us as a council and for our residents. Rising costs as a result of inflation, increasing demand for key services year after year has put real pressure on our budget, so we need to support Suffolk, help it build back following the pandemic, but ensure the key services are there for those who need it most and we recognise that our residents are feeling the pressure too. The planned increase means an extra 62 pence per week for a band B property, or 80 pence per week for a band D home. The budget plans will see the revenue budget increase from £598.2 million to £625.4 million in the year ahead. That includes £16.2 million additional cash going into the Adult Social Care Service and £9.9 million in Children's and Young People's Services. The extra £9.9 million for Children's Services includes an additional £1.1 million to address improvements in Special Educational Needs and Disabilities, SEND, identified in an independent report earlier this year. Councillor Rout said there would be an additional £6.5 million set out next year to create even more SEND places and an extra £1 million over four years for visible highways improvements like road sign repairs. Opposition councillors have raised concerns over a number of elements. The Green, Liberal Democrat and Independent group said the lack of a specific carbon budget meant the Conservatives had failed to take their own declaration of a climate emergency seriously and said the lack of support for the breweries and hospitality businesses in Suffolk left them with the uncertainty of survival. Sarah Adams, Labour Group leader, said the Conservatives are increasing taxes to almost the maximum possible and this is because they have failed to put in more sensible increases over the last years. 
It has been clear to the opposition that by increasing the social care precept, this sharp increase in taxes could have been avoided. This is an accumulative failure to act, and if we were listened to before, we would not be repeating mistakes. We're moving now to the general news. Bosses at a housing association say they are weighing up their options over long-delayed improvements at an eco-friendly block of flats. Havebury Housing Partnership announced in February 2020 it would rehome tenants in the 12 flats at the Goodfellows development in Bury St Edmunds. It said a survey identified the need for a range of improvements to the award-winning flats in Kings Road Parkway, but the work was later delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Delays have continued with Havebury unable to clarify the nature of the improvement work. A spokesman said, We have been working with consultants on our options for the Goodfellows development. We will be able to confirm timescales, including when we hope to relet as soon as possible. The COVID-19 pandemic has unfortunately caused this project to progress much longer than we anticipated and would have liked, but this continues to remain one of our top priorities. When works to the scheme were identified, we supported all residents into new accommodation. Suffolk's largest independent leisure provider, Abbeycroft Leisure, has said it has provided more than 20,000 meals through its projects in 2021. Not only were the meals given to families and individuals in financial hardship, but also this Christmas a further 450 food boxes and activity packs, 95 family cooking sessions, 100 free adventure days with lunch, and 200 heat-at-home lunches and hampers were also provided. Frank Kahn-Pryor, Abbeycroft Sports and Outdoor Activity Officer, said, It is heartwarming to see the difference these projects are making to people's lives, and I am incredibly proud to be a part of it. The projects were helped with funding from Bury St Edmunds Town Council and the Department for Education, plus support from West Suffolk College, West Suffolk Council, Bury St Edmunds Rickshaw and donations from businesses. A former Bury St Edmunds charity shop could be transformed into a Belgian-style beer bar. Cornelis van den Oort of Beautiful Beers in St John Street is seeking planning permission for the bar at the former RSPCA West Suffolk branch shop in St Andrew Street South. A planning statement submitted to West Suffolk Council to convert units A and B at the Old Stable House said the bar would sell speciality continental and English beers. The bar would be table service only and most beers sold in smaller sizes to give a special continental style atmosphere. The statement said the proposals would greatly enhance the choice of entertainment for local residents and visitors to Bury St Edmunds. The addition of a quality and upmarket <coughs> entertainment venue within this area of Bury St Edmunds would also benefit other businesses and venues in the same area, it said. The bar would encourage a relaxed atmosphere with easy listening background music as well as sofas and bench seating. It would serve traditional bar snacks and light snacks with a continental flavour, 
but no hot food would be prepared on site. Customers would be allowed to order food from restaurants and takeaways through local delivery services and websites such as Deliveroo and Just Eat for delivery on site with plates and utensils provided by staff. A Stowmarket malt producer was highlighted on national TV last week as part of a documentary about one of the nation's favourite snacks. Muntons appeared in an episode of BBC Two's Inside the Factory on Wednesday, which offered a glimpse of how the malt loaf is made. In the first episode, presenter Greg Wallace visited Soreen's factory in Manchester. For Wednesday's episode, Cherry Healy was shown around Muntons headquarters in Stowmarket to learn how malt ingredients play a critical role in the malt loaf's classic taste and famous texture. George Irving, Malting's manager at Muntons, showed Cherry around the facilities. The episode, which is now available on Catch-Up TV, also featured drone footage of the Stowmarket site. A maximum £10 increase for Band D homes on the policing element of the Suffolk Council tax bill is being proposed from April 2022 with extra cash set to fund improvements to the 101 response service. Suffolk Police and Crime Commissioner Tim Passmore outlined his precept proposals for 2022-23 on Wednesday as a public consultation launched. It proposes the maximum £10 increase for the year for a bandy property, the equivalent of 19 pence per week extra. For Band B properties, which are the most common in Suffolk, it represents a £7.77 increase, or 15 pence per week. Mr Passmore said that it would generate an extra £2.5 million for the service. £1 million of that would fund existing commitments such as pay and inflation costs, while £1.4 million would fund improvement plans for the control room, which included addressing concerns around the 101 service. According to the PCC's plans, extra staff will be recruited to take 101 calls and manage resources responding to calls more efficiently. It will also create a digital desk around online and social media contact. The public can comment on the proposals until January the 27th, with the proposals then being presented to the Police and Crime Panel. The 101 service has come under fire over response times in recent months. Figures for 2020-21 indicated an average response time of 15 minutes. A recycling and anti-waste campaign from Barry St Edmunds has welcomed the idea that curbside recycling in Suffolk could include glass collections and food waste recycling within the next five years. Though there are no details about the Environment Bill, passed by government in November, the Suffolk Waste Partnership has said there is a strong indication from Westminster that these collections will be introduced across the county. Karen Cannard said she hoped this could be brought to Suffolk as soon as possible. She said curbside glass collection and food waste recycling would be very welcome improvements to local services, 
Not only would this see our county move closer towards zero waste, there could be unexpected benefits for residents too. In other areas where food waste is recycled, householders are able to see the full extent of waste produced and meals for the first time, with many being inspired to reduce it further, thus helping to reduce their carbon footprint and food bill. Early research by the Waste Partnership has indicated possibilities could be around co-mingled dry recycling waste with a separate glass collection system, or an alternate weekly collection keeping glass, paper and card, plastics and metal separate. Karen said, Judging by questions from audiences during my rubbish diet talks, curbside glass and food waste collections are recycling services that are most in demand in our area. I'm sure many fellow residents would agree that this would be the right decision by the government. Around 20% of recycling waste is contaminated by wrong items, which means the load has to be rejected. The main contaminants are glass, used nappies and food waste. James Malinder, Chairman of Suffolk Waste Partnership and Conservative Cabinet Member for the Environment at East Suffolk Council said... This is one of the biggest changes in the services of the local authority you are going to see in a lifetime. Bins are very emotive for people. It is one of the main interactions people have with their council. To find what can and cannot be recycled, go to www.suffolkrecycling.org.uk a group of litter-picking children called the Southgate Ward Wombles made Bury St Edmunds tidier during 2021 by collecting 76 bags of litter. Led by mum Victoria Baxter, who was inspired when her children noticed litter on the ward and supported with supplies by West Suffolk Council, the group won the Bury in Bloom Outstanding Achievement Award in March 2021 but continued collecting litter throughout the year. <laughs> Staff at a travel agency in Bury St Edmunds have been busy cake-making to raise money for the Rainbow Ward at West Suffolk Hospital. Seven members of staff at Hayes Travel took part in the fundraiser in October in memory of John Hayes, the founder and chief executive of the company, who died in 2020. Staff raised £201 for the Rainbow Ward, a cause close to their hearts. Store manager Katie Elzanati said, The Rainbow Ward hit home to all of us, as we all know of families who have had children cared for in the unit, including one of our staff members. We were prompted to do the event in memory of John Hayes, who supported charitable causes. Fundraising manager Sally Daniels added, Thank you to everyone at Hayes for supporting the Rainbow Ward at West Suffolk Hospital. We're going to move away from the general news now and go on to letters. My first is um, the Berry Free Press, the editor, and he says, Be gone, 21, and hello, 22. <laughs> we thought 2020 would be our annus horribilis, but 2021 came pretty close to eclipsing it. 
More deaths, more lockdowns, more infections, more freedoms gone with a simple cough and splutter. We masked up. Well, some of us did. We tested, we got jabbed. Well, some of us did. We kept our distance and sanitised at every turn. Uh, ditto. Hospitality limped through the year. The NHS creaked under the pressure. We didn't clap our heroes in the street so much in 2021, but they carried on regardless, doing their jobs in such trying circumstances. They shone. They always do. It was saddening that the bosses at West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds didn't exactly cover themselves in glory. Perhaps the new set of managers should take note. Do what's required, do it well, excel and everyone's happy. Then there was the West Suffolk MP and ex-Health Secretary Matt Hancock. Quite a year. Quite a fall from such a high perch. Lots of tabloid tittle-tattle and front-page exposure. Political, political commentators suggest Mr Hancock could still be Tory leader. He must have thought he had kissed that one goodbye. <laughs> I'll know a letter from Simon Whitney. Now, he's Deputy Secretary of Suffolk NASUWT, the Teachers' Union. And his letter is headed, Teaching Union Concerned Over Return to School. Suffolk NASUWT is very concerned about this week's return to schools. The widespread infections of the latest COVID outbreak have hit staff and pupils of all ages badly and will inevitably lead to some schools closing. It will not be so easy to revert to online teaching as previously due to the mix of pupils at school or at home and teachers and other school staff being torn between catering for the pupils online, in school and their own families. It is pointless, the Prime Minister saying, the NHS and hospitals will be under great pressure over the next few weeks without including schools. The staff and pupils in schools will also have many absences due to illness and isolation. As children isolate, parents have to stay at home, and the whole downward spiral leads to less services and productivity in the economy. As throughout the entire pandemic, NASUWT members, teachers and school staff will do everything possible to assist their pupils. But if 20% plus of school staff are off work, there is no safe way to run schools and certainly not provide an acceptable education. Schools are not a babysitting service to enable people to return to work and certainly not to cover up for the incompetence of a government which has let the infection run wild and not provided proper means of ventilating schools. As with all actions, there is a consequence and the government's consequence in England will be greater infections more school closures and less learning opportunities for children. Ministers have suggested various strategies to keep schools open. Firstly, doubling up classes. A very short-term measure for an afternoon or part of a morning, completely impractical for any length of time. Not safe. What do you teach? And has the school the room to put 60 pupils together in a ventilated area? Clearly, the idea of a minister was never taught a class. Second, retired teachers returning to help out in schools. The NAS UWT would ask, are they to be paid? 
Will their pay affect their pensions? How will this impact on the employment of supply teachers who are paid? Who will do the child protection checks on these staff and how long will they take? We do not want inappropriate adults entering into schools under the cover of this panic measure. Again, what do they teach and who is planning the work? This yet again shows a total lack of knowledge of how the education service works and learning takes place. A CEO of a trust was heard to say on Radio 4 this week that he had bought 32,000 laptops for his trust so none of his pupils would miss out if they returned to online learning. This statement shows such a total ignorance to what has been happening to our children's education throughout the pandemic. Just because a child has a laptop and thousands do not, or share with two or three siblings, that does not mean they have the same access to the internet. Their parents may not be able to pay for a fast or strong connection. Their parents might need to prioritise their own work over the children. There might be three or four school-aged children in the household. A child may have literacy difficulties, so cannot read the work or write the answers. The family may not value education, so do not motivate the child, etc. Due to the Prime Minister and his government's lack of action to restrict the spread of the virus, schools and school staff face a second spring in a row of unprecedented difficulties. The NASUWT will vigorously support its members in ensuring they work in the safest environment possible in school. We will offer all the support we can to the overworked head teachers who have yet again been deserted by the government and left to attempt to do the impossible. Let us all hope that schools do not jump through impossible hoops in testing pupils, implementing schemes to teach vulnerable and key worker children and then have the Prime Minister announce a lockdown, one day into term, just as he did last year. Our members on the Children of England deserve much better treatment than they are currently getting from this government after nearly two years of the Covid crisis. Lynn Perry and Michelle Lee Izu, they are the interim co-CEOs of Bernardo's and they write, thank you for your support. We would like to thank all those who have supported the work of Bernardo's during the last 12 months. The past year has been one of the most difficult for the charity in our 155-year history, but we adapted and innovated our services to keep them going and reach more vulnerable young people and families than ever before. It is thanks to our supporters that we were able to extend our work to support more than 382,000 children, young people and families across the UK through almost 800 services and partnerships. That work has helped change the lives of children who have been affected by abuse, mental health issues and disability. We have supported young people in care and those leaving care, giving, given young carers the resilience to cope with caring for sick and disabled relatives and supported young people in the challenging areas of sexual children, sexual sorry, and supported young people in the challenging areas of child sexual exploitation, trafficking and many others. Our Bernardo's coronavirus appeal raised more than £2.4 million 
allowing us to provide direct practical support to struggling families. We also helped more than 100,000 young people who were struggling during the pandemic and couldn't access other support, working alongside 87 other charities. We couldn't have done this without our dedicated staff. The 10,400 volunteers who support us in our services, shops and fundraising, and our partners, including People's Postcode Lottery and others, who donate money to support Bernardo's each year, enabling us to develop innovative programmes to transform young lives and deliver this work. We also couldn't have achieved what we have without every member of the public who has donated to Bernardo's during the last year, whether that be through our shops or fundraising. We face many challenges in 2022, but know that with your support, we can continue to make a difference to the lives of the vulnerable children and families. Wishing our supporters all the very best for a happy 2022. And now a short letter from John Dell of Shotley. Headed, we cannot live in isolation. I recently saw a sign which had been put up in a hospital in Exeter, which brought me up short. The staff had taken the time to ask their colleagues their nationalities and these had been listed individually in alphabetical order on that sign. It showed that this hospital alone had 96 different nationalities working within it, from Afghans to Zimbabweans. It's highly likely that an analysis of the hospitals in Suffolk would demonstrate a similarly diverse workforce. That list shows, perhaps better than anything, that the UK cannot live in isolation. At some point, if we wish to survive in this world, we will simply have to accept that fact. We cannot hide behind a narrow strip of water forever. Polly Neat is the Chief Executive of Shelter and she writes, Shelter estimates that more than 18,000 children living in privately rented homes in the east of England are at risk of being evicted this winter. The extensive polling which was carried for the charity by YouGov found that 9,600 private renting families in the region had received an eviction notice in the last month or are currently behind on their rent, putting them in real danger of losing their home. In response, Shelter is calling on the public to support its frontline advisers who are working seven days a week to help as many families as possible to find or keep hold of a safe home. With the eviction ban now over and the £65 million fund for rent arrears not enough to reach everyone struggling, the charity is concerned even more eviction notices will start rolling in as living costs rise and debts mount for many. The fear of becoming homeless is looming large over family life with the shelter's research also showing that in the east of England, nearly three-quarters of families, that is 72%, would struggle to find another privately rented home this winter if they lost theirs. One in five renting parents, that is 20%, say their children know they are struggling to pay rent. Shockingly, one in ten that is 12%, say their children worry about becoming homeless. 
No child should have to worry about losing their home at Christmas or New Year, let alone 18,000. Eviction notices have started dropping on doormats and our services are working round the clock to help families who have nowhere else to go. Like it has before, the government needs to intervene to keep people safe in their homes. We urgently need more support for renters to protect them from eviction this winter. According to the latest government figures, 7,000 children are already homeless in the east of England and many of them spent Christmas Day and the New Year with their families in shoddy emergency hostels and run-down B&Bs. To help shelter in its work to prevent more children being tipped into homelessness, visit shelter.org.uk forward slash donate. And here's a letter <coughs> jointly written by Paul Farmer, Chief Executive of MIND, Mark Winstanley, Chief Executive of Rethink Mental Illness, and Rebecca Birkbeck, who's Director of Community and Shared Values at the Co-op Group. As we approach two years since the start of the pandemic, it's never been more important to talk about our mental health. The last two years have affected us all, and we know that talking about it can help us feel less alone, more able to cope and encouraged to seek support if we need it. We are running Time to Talk Day on February the 3rd and we want to see more communities than ever getting involved this year. However you do it, have a conversation about mental health this Time to Talk Day. John Bailey um, from Stanton writes, Sir... To the staunch and plainly embarrassed Brexit people who now complain about our letters in this publication, which is the East Anglian Daily Times, can I point out that we, categorised as re-moaners by such people, have had almost 50 years of constant complaints about Europe and the EU from them. One could suggest their focus of complaint has now had to change somewhat. I don't want to see pictures of Hunt, says Lynn Kentish via email. How is it that the local Boxing Day Hunt still gets such a big feature in the Berry Free Press? OK, it's a tradition, but one that has no place in today's society. It has been recognised as having been an unacceptable, cruel practice by being made illegal. I'm sure that the local hunt doesn't now persecute and kill foxes, but that's probably only because it's against the law, not for kind or enlightened reasons. If it hadn't been banned, they'd still be doing it. I'm not going to go into the cruelty involved. We all know fox hunting was and is inhumane, anachronistic and an inexcusable abuse of animals. It's 2022. Fox hunting is outdated and outlawed. I, for one, don't want to see it all the spirit of it being celebrated or publicised in future years by my local paper. Ian Smith of Bury St Edmunds writes, We all know that Britain has had a good record for welcoming asylum seekers who are in genuine fear of their lives or of persecution. However, 
In recent times, the asylum system has been inundated with those coming to our shores by unconventional means with the help of traffickers across in France. Recent letters on these pages claimed we should be more understanding and sympathetic towards those wishing to enter our country, implying more should be done for those making illegal and dangerous crossings. While referencing men, women and children coming across, I do not recall reading any statistics from those concerned good people regarding the individual breakdowns. Which brings me to the recent revelation. It has been reported that the number of asylum seekers pretending to be children has reached a record high. More than 1,100 migrants who claimed to be under 18 were found to be adults in the 12 months to September 2021. In one of the most troubling examples of an asylum seeker pretending to be a child, Parsons Green terrorist Ahmed Hassan posed as a 16-year-old before setting off a mother-of-Satan bomb on a London tube train in 2017, injuring 23 people. And near a home in 2018, a Home Office investigation found an adult asylum seeker spent six weeks as a GCSE pupil at Stoke High School in Ipswich. Food for thought, readers. Uh, my letter from Mr R.A. Smith of Hadley. <clears throat> Entitled Memories of D-Day Landings, he says, Many thanks for your article about Alan King. Uh, that was in the East Anglian Daily Times of January the 3rd. He says, Like Mr King, my father was also a radio operator in a Sherman tank landing on D-Day, but would rarely speak about the horrors he encountered. But here is a little he did say, which I remember. When launched into the water, the tanks were covered in what was hoped to be a buoyant waterproof cover with severe risk of machine guns penetrating these and drowning the crew. While getting onto the beach, there were many uncleared mines which could blow them up. Visibility in the tanks was poor, so the tank commanders had to put the lid up to see out which gave rise to an abnormal number of tank commanders being killed as German snipers concentrated on blinding the tanks. Tanks became scarce at one stage and father's crew was exchanged for a fresh crew which minutes later was destroyed. The whole Battle of Arnhem was a massive failure by Montgomery to check every facet of the operation, from the many failures towards the paratroopers to the lack of a plan B to overcome German resistance, resulting in heavy losses to the tank column sent to relieve them. Leaving out much else in between, the final arrival at the extermination camps, which no Allied forces could stomach, at the end, father was the telephone exchange for a major German port city, lived in a luxury Luftwaffe airbase, and only needed to attend to a few hundred connections each day everything else having been destroyed. Finally, about our allies. Some misguided or cowardly USA commander launched their covered tanks far too far away from their section of the shore on D-Day in very poor weather. And only a very few survivors made it to their section of beach, meaning all the heroic crews were drowned. Rest in peace.
Uh, I have a nice picture of Mark Murphy in front of me now, and I'm going to read what he has to say. You'll probably know about Mark Murphy. He's BBC Radio Suffolk, and he does breakfasts. And his heading is, Warmer months ahead have plenty in store to take our minds off Omicron. As I sit and write this column in central Ipswich, the sun is shining brightly and there's a lovely clear blue sky. My mind is wandering to the warmer months ahead and thinking of what we've got to look forward to in Suffolk this year. The way the Omicron variant of Covid is whipping through our lives, we certainly need something to look forward to. On Monday, we launched this year's Suffolk Day on my BBC Radio Suffolk Breakfast Show, which as always falls on June the 21st, the longest day of the year, and that means more time to celebrate where we live. People often say to me, what should we do on that day? My response is, whatever you like. It might be something simple like going for a walk in the countryside or on one of our lovely beaches. Maybe it's meeting up with friends or family. It doesn't really matter. It's just a moment to stop and think how lucky we are to live in Suffolk. It's on a Tuesday this year, which means we're really hoping that schools will get involved and maybe have special lessons all about where we live. In the past, some schools have had special lunches of Suffolk produce and taken the opportunity to look at where that food comes from. Others have looked at the history of the county. It's just lovely to get the next generation to love where they live. This year it will be part of the Festival of Suffolk to help mark Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. So it's going to be a big one this year. We'll have lots on this over the next few months, both on BBC Radio Suffolk and here in the East Anglian Daily Times. I'd love to hear from you if you're planning to do something for it this year. Looking ahead, we've also got a big week at the beginning of June with the Suffolk show and a four-day long weekend to mark the Jubilee. I've really missed the show for the last two years and I'm itching to see it all this year. It's on May the 31st and June the 1st, which is a Tuesday and Wednesday instead of the usual Wednesday and Thursday. It's one of the few times when we come together as a county. There's loads of stuff being planned for the Festival of Suffolk too, so all in all we've got lots to look forward to in 2022. One thing I'm really hoping for is for my beloved Ipswich Town to make it to the League One playoffs and get us a day out at Wembley. <laughs> few exclamation <laughs> yeah. marks there. <laughs> keep hoping keep for that one. <laughs> I'm super excited by our new manager, Kieran McKenna. And who knows if we go up and Norwich come down. Hey presto, the local derby is back. Well, I can dream, can't I? <laughs> Before I finish this week, I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who has been in touch about my MBE. I've been bowled over by the good wishes, cards and messages that I've received. I'm now off to buy a scrapbook to pop them all in. Uh, my article here is by a local historian, author and tour guide, Martin Taylor, who you will already know of. And it's entitled Prefabs Had All Mod Cons. And I'll tell you at the end why this is a special resonance for me personally. Now, Martin writes, 
temporary prefab homes built in Berries and Edmonds were intended as a stopgap measure due to a shortage of accommodation soon after World War II. There would eventually be 67 throughout the town, 20 in East Close, 17 in Perry Close, 15 in Queen's Close, 13 in York Close and just two in Priors Close. They would certainly go past their intended lifespan of 10 years as they survived well into the 1970s. An incredible 39,000 plus were distributed across the country. They came about because of a new research organisation founded in 1943 called ARCOM, consisting of architectural consultants Edric Neal, Rodney Thomas and Raglan Squire, joined later by Jack Howe, an industrial designer. Their intention was to create a steel-framed, single-storey dwelling, in effect a bungalow, having asbestos panels bolted to the frame. To enable these to be transported on flatbed lorries, the units had to be no more than seven and a half feet wide. One Berry resident who could remember constructing these said that after a concrete base had been prepared, two of these lorries would turn up with one prefab and it would be assembled in one day. They had two bedrooms, fitted kitchen, a living room with a coal fire and back boiler and obligatory coal bunker. With a bathroom and separate toilet, these were certainly facilities not enjoyed by some of the lesser quality homes in the town. The living space of 635 square feet consequently was looked upon favourably by those who had come from less fortunate environments. Internally, painted magnolia throughout, the woodwork, skirting boards and architraves were painted dark green gloss, the doors made of steel. I'm sure many Berry residents can still remember these prefabs with affection despite the supposed cold, damp conditions attributed to them. And their construction, that of corrugated asbestos, would not be looked upon favourably these days. And why it's of personal interest to me is that when I first moved to Bury St Edmunds in the late 1970s to take up work here, uh, before my wife joined me and we were able to buy our own house, uh, the late Cecil Warby and his wife, um, former ambulance driver and erstwhile um, county court clerk, was kind enough to offer me a room in his prefab on East Close, uh, where I stayed for some months when I first took a teaching job here. So in memory of him, it was really special for me to read that item to you. The editor has written on the top of this feature, which is going to be the last of today. She's put quite a funny tale that could happen to any of our bird feeding listeners. <laughs> and I'm sure that it'll make you smile. That's what we need, isn't it? We do. And it's headed Pensioner 81. So that applies to quite a few of us. Mistakenly grows five foot cannabis plant in front garden. <laughs> <laughs> A pensioner has told of her experience unwittingly growing cannabis in her front garden during lockdown. The plant grew to more than five feet tall and is thought to have sprouted from birdseed. <laughs> the Felixstowe woman, aged 81, who wants to remain anonymous, I wonder why, <laughs> first noticed the unusual looking plant in early April. She said, 
It was down the side of the driveway, in this little strip of soil between the concrete and the fence. I thought it looked a bit funny, but I like growing unusual plants, so I made a point to give it an extra splash with the watering can <laughs> when I went out each day. I was intrigued to see what it grew into. As the plant grew larger, the 81-year-old started to feel suspicious of the plant. There weren't any flowers on it, just these <laughs> weird little buds. I asked some of the family if it could be cannabis, because you never know what's been blown over the fence. But they just laughed, she added. However, the family took her fears seriously in July, when the plant had grown around three feet tall. They came round for a look, and they were really shocked, she said. My granddaughter picked a leaf and sniffed it, and said it made her feel all seasick. <laughs> Silly girl, I told her not to. We looked it up on the internet, and it turned out other people have had the same thing happen to them. Apparently, seeds come in bird food, which makes sense because I buy it by the sack. The plant continued to grow until it towered over the woman, who is five foot six. It was a bit of a laugh at first, but I was starting to worry. We've got a retired police inspector living opposite and a sergeant down the road. The final straw came when the village postman knocked on her door. He was trying to figure out if I knew what I was growing. My husband said, for God's sake, woman, we need to get rid of this thing sharpest before we get weirdos hang banging on the door, wanting <laughs> you to sell them something. He said, you're going to turn us into the talk of the cul-de-sac. We had the good grandchildren round again to dig it up, since it had grown right into the concrete and I couldn't get it to budge. We put it through the garden shredder, took <laughs> it down the dump, and that was the end of that. Suffolk Police's controlled drug liaison officer, Robin Pivot, said the force had not seen a reported case of this nature for many years. The officer said, Occasionally, birdseed can be contaminated. However, producers of birdseed do all they can to prevent this happening, often by denaturing hemp seed. There are one or two reports each year from around the country. The weather would also be a factor. The circumstances of each case reported would be considered. If indeed a genuine accident, we would not prosecute. The officer said that shredding was the best means of disposal. The grandmother of four is unsure where exactly she purchased her birdseed from, but a spokesman for animal feed wholesaler Cop Dock Mill explained how the plant came to grow in the garden. A representative said... Hemp would be a more accurate description of the plant than cannabis. Cannabis and hemp are both part of the same family of plants, but hemp is defined as having levels of 0.3% or lower of the psychoactive compound THC. The Copdoc Mill spokesman said, Hemp seed is used in the production of wild bird seed, but it is highly unlikely that a seed will germinate, since they will have been denatured, which is to say, treated with heat. That being said, it is not impossible, as this person's experience shows, and there have been similar cases in the news. In 2014, a woman from Exmouth also grew a plant reaching five feet, while in 2019, a man contacted BBC Gardener's World 
for help identifying a mystery plant in his garden, which also turned out to be a hemp. <laughs> so look out, everybody, when the spring comes. <laughs> there. So with a smile on our faces, we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmund's Been News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, the Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sue, Harvey and myself, Val, it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.